and welcome to Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. First things you might have noticed, we've changed things a little bit. We have a, a tiny bit of music at the start, which comes from a number of emails and reviews that we've got where I think people... Uh, have asked that there's some kind of division otherwise they've kind of got lost in the miasma of registered podcasts not knowing where one began and ended so we've added that this uh, edition uh, features an interview with the architect Ryan Kennehan and Ryan actually gave his lecture a year ago and we did do an interview at the time but some kind of technical glitch meant that an hour and a half of audio reduced to uh, 30 seconds of Ryan saying thank you over and over again and while I was eager to issue that as some kind of art piece perhaps uh, I don't think it would have been a useful way to pass your commute or your gym uh, session or whatever it is you do while you listen to this. So over Christmas Ryan um, was in my house and so we actually just opportunistically sat down and had a conversation. In the middle of it we're interrupted by the arrival of my two-year-old son uh, who comes in and kind of curls up on my lap. Apologies for any disruption and any change in noise uh, sound quality at that point. I, we've tried to edit it so that it's minimised but that's the way things roll I guess when you're interviewing somebody in your house. Uh, Ryan is an architect who was born in the States and who was educated in the States in Cornell but very quickly on graduation moved to Ireland following uh, the footsteps of his then girlfriend now wife Jennifer Boyer. And when Ryan came here, he immediately kind of integrated in the scene, um, working for uh, practice in Dublin and teaching in the Dublin School of Architecture, now TU Dublin, where he now runs the thesis year there and is a senior member of the team. He set up his practice about 10 years ago, around the same time as we set up ours, and has been carving out a kind of position for himself uh, where he's interested in the in continuity and history and in the expressive potentials of structure that positions an evolving one and we go into it in some depth in this in this conversation i do hope it's not too nerdy but it is how we talk about architecture to one another um, and so without further ado um here's the interview and i do hope you enjoy it thank you thanks ryan for agreeing to do this interview again sorry about the technical glitches no problem i guess well we've known each other now for pretty much as long as you've been in ireland but we've never really had a conversation about origin story etc so you grew up in Chicago, born in Chicago? I was born in Pittsburgh, actually. Pittsburgh, okay. Yeah, born in Pittsburgh and then grew up mainly in Chicago. Was being an architect always on the radar? Uh, no, no, actually it was never on the cards, really. I never knew what an architect did or anything like that, really. My, my father was a sales rep for pots and pans and things, and so even working in a creative field wasn't really even on the radar. I'd always been doing kind of bits of maybe what you would call creative stuff, interested in drawing or photography or something like that. Then, I don't know, my dad also always though was very crafty, he'd always be making things, you know. I mean, just kind of DIY stuff, but stuff that he really would draft out beforehand in a kind of almost architectural way, so yeah. the idea of making stuff was always there, maybe. When I was applying for colleges, which is of course a very big, arduous process in the States, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was always looking for places that had an architectural program, even though I was applying to engineering programs, applying to be a structural engineer. Huh. So that's what I got into school for, was structural engineering, but I knew that they had an architecture school. And was that with an eye on doing electives, or kind of...? Sort of that, of, kind of something in the back of my mind, maybe that I wouldn't be entirely happy as an engineer. You know, so for example, so like in my first year at school, I did fine in engineering, it was 
it was fine. It was all doable. But I was trying to find, always looking for something else outside of that. I ended up kind of having friends in the architecture school and the studio at Cornell was kind of a very exciting and lively sort of place. Back in the day, it was pre, pre cool house building um, when it was really just a kind of old industrial building. This and, is 95, 96? Uh, yeah, started in school in 95. So architecture is 96, yeah. yeah. So of course, it was kind of one of these old, like classic typical studios, you know, leaky steel windows and steel columns and brick and kickable and crap everywhere and people smoking and drinking at their desks and this sort of stuff, you know, like compared to the engineering school, it was, you know, a completely other world. Yeah, so I decided I wanted to transfer after my first year and took a, f- a fairly big gamble and didn't enroll in any engineer- engineering courses <laughs> in my first semester of second year. And they let me take the first semester of first year architecture. So right. at the end of the first semester, I was applying to be an architect. And at the same time, I got a letter from the engineering school saying I was kicked out because I didn't take any classes before I got accepted into the architecture program. So there was a kind of pretty scary two months there when my parents were very unhappy with me, where I'd basically been kicked out of school. (laughs) I hadn't been accepted to the architecture program. And obviously this comes in the States with a huge financial worry, right? Yeah, huge financial worry. Yeah. And was that a thought mention? But you got into the school, right? Yeah, Yeah, eventually. How long had Roe been gone? Roe died, I guess, in the late 80s, did he? Early 90s? Yeah, he'd been gone for a while. There was a lot of still talk of him, and there were people who had worked with him and taught with him there still in the program, like the kind of elder statesmen of the program at that point were still there and so that way of teaching and thinking was very present i guess um still yeah uh people talk about the texas rangers and stuff which is not a group of people particularly known outside maybe of the row school but yeah so that way of thinking and working was still there you know we still did a nine square grid problem everybody in the first year you know it was still this kind of institution although it was changing a lot you know we still we were starting to get you know the younger teachers were all still starting to do kind of digital stuff at that point in time and very much this kind of Maybe concept-driven academic architecture was very much, you know, in the program as well. So, to be honest, I mean, I guess looking back on it now, the school's agenda was very mixed at that point in time. It didn't seem to have found its foot feet again yet, you know. Um, it wasn't clear necessarily what the kind of broad approach they were teaching was. And I think perhaps, you know, amazing people in the school and a great sport and amazing library and all this stuff, that and the, the quality of students they get is fantastic so they always managed to maintain this kind of kind of quality but the agenda wasn't and it doesn't still appear to be clear although outside of it now but you know it still feels to me like it was moving towards the world that a lot of the american schools have kind of tended to now you know where there's a lot of the same staff teaching in them and they kind of seem to trade places with each other and they don't seem to differentiate so much you know if you look at the difference between a cornell or a columbia or a Yale, which notionally are quite different. Yeah. When you look at the work, it's not that different, you know? So I think it was moving in this kind of towards this, I don't know, collective middle ground or something that, you know, I don't don't think any of them have found their way out of, as far as I can see. It's hard though, because I guess the biggest issue in the States is what you do after college, right? So it seems to be quite difficult to set up young or interesting practices. You know, the, 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 the forces of capital are so big, right? Mm. And the building industry is so systematized that I guess it's hard to get critical practitioners teaching because there's no space or there's little space, mm. despite all the money for kind of 
interesting architects. I mean, this is definitely one of my big frustrations. I'm sure it is for, and it's a frustration for a lot of my friends back in the States from college. And a lot of them are still struggling to find a way to make practice. And so, yeah, you get a lot of people who are teaching are purely academics or they have a kind of a notional practice, but not exactly building anything. Yeah, they're doing paper projects. Paper or, projects yeah. and things. And I know, I know we're making very broad generalizations here, but I think there is a truth in it. I think the populace is somewhat risk averse, perhaps, in when it comes to building. I think that the insurance industry and the litigiousness of the society is a problem that people won't take risks, maybe, you know, yeah. uh, that even if you're doing something as simple as a house extension, then people want to see 15 other house extensions of the exact same style before that you have done, you know, so there's not a kind of openness to young practice getting a foothold there. Here, it's worlds different, worlds different. And so you graduated 2001? Yeah. And, but you arrived in Ireland, I guess, 2003-ish, two, two, two yeah. yeah, so almost straight after. Yeah, I did a year in San Francisco, uh, it was not for me. Obviously, I had some connections here, so um, so I spent a bit of time in Europe when I was in college and liked the idea of going back. And there was a special work visa for architects here because you couldn't hire architects fast enough. So, so yeah, in I, two days, I got a work visa for two years. And because of some connections, I was able to get a, uh, an interview and a job quite quickly. So it was kind of an amazing time and actually getting opportunities right off the boat like that you would never get in the States you know, walking into a practice and basically getting given a tender set to do when I didn't know what the word tender meant and I'd never drawn a detail out of college and this sort of thing was pretty extraordinary for me when that was all I wanted to do, you know. And that's Boyd Cody, straight into Boyd Cody. Straight into Boyd Cody, yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah, I mean, also, I mean, I guess, you know, to a practice who at the time I was, I did find their work quite compelling. I mean, they're very good, I, you know, yeah, yeah, I yeah. do like their work. It's not maybe what I'm interested in now, but at that time to be doing this kind of pure modernism and building it, and being involved in every stage and very deeply involved in every stage of it uh, was extraordinary for me. You know, it was really eye-opening that this, something like this was possible even, you know, whereas most of the people I would have graduated with would be doing renderings and things. And you know, nobody saw a construction site for years, you know, this sort of You were thing. attracted to that kind of tangible aspect of it. You wanted that. Sure. Yeah. And was that happening in your class as well? Like, so was the discourse in, as you graduated, was it one of frustration <clears throat> or was it one of just, okay, we're good, we're out, and the frustrations have emerged more recently among your colleagues I'm talking about? Were you earlier to that than they were? Yeah, that's tricky. Um, I, I think perhaps even at that stage, there was a bit of exhaustion around maybe number one, the kind of architect formalist sort of stuff. There was a bit of exhaustion around maybe, it seemed like always us were chasing some sort of conceptual genius or something, right? You know, find, trying to find some conceptual move or something, or yeah. some conceptual agenda, which would maybe catapult one into something, I don't know, right? And, but, the, but there was never, it was never clear how one got there, you know? And so at the same, so in a way, I think like the school felt a little bit lost at that point, I think we all felt a little bit that way, like we're all searching and empty-handedly in a way in our own direction but I do remember quite distinctly when the first black fabric Zumthor books came out or it was the one sorry the one, one black fabric yeah. Zumthor book yeah and I, I I don't know how I came across it but I got it and that was certainly a revelation throughout the studio you know that here was work which was quite direct in a way you know whose concepts were architectural um, rather than 
Retire. extrinsic or something to architecture yeah. being imported in, which a lot of the stuff that was spoken about was that way, you know, like pulling in, trying to find meaning outside of the fundaments of architecture was how things seemed to be happening in the school. So to find something that was very material, very real, the ideas were present and architectural was, I think, a very powerful thing that we all felt, you know, the book got handed around and unfortunately disappeared <laughs> quite quickly. So yeah, so I think there was, it was there, but I, in the studio, but it wasn't so explicit that, or maybe we couldn't recognize it yet. And certainly, I guess I was always sort of interested in history somehow, you know, looking back and looking forward a little bit, but I didn't really know how to do it or how to get at it. So, And Chicago, obviously, has to be somewhere here. I mean, I know you've talked about it recently, but you talk about Sullivan, you talk about uh, Lloyd Wright and others. Was that something that was just part of the water there, just part of the fabric? Yeah, I mean, I guess the suburb that I kind of grew up in for a long time was, you know, we had two Wright houses in, in the town, you know, so he was certainly known about. When you go on, like, the tour of Falling Water, you know, you spend the time and they point out, you know, the guides point out, like, where the Tiffany glass is. Yeah. You know, so it's like... a sort of branding designy sort of thing you know lifestyle plus yeah exactly yeah. and so in a way it's not thought of in terms of a, a kind of architecture in a way so much you know right was revolutionary in a way and they would say that right but it's not you wouldn't approach it or understand it that way when you're living there it's kind of like oh it's like a tourist thing you know yeah oh, you can go see the yeah, Sears yeah, yeah. Tower or you can go see yeah you know right building or you know it's a kind of touristy thing but certainly I guess I knew about it but I didn't know about it in a way an architect would think about it or understand it or something like that. Yeah, and so my, my interest in Sullivan, yes, actually I did go to shows at the Auditorium Theatre quite regularly. Would I have recognized or thought about that as a kind of spatial experience or something which would inspire me? No. Um, all of that sort of came later, I guess. Whether it was in the background, I don't know. I can't help but think that all of those kind of stuff that that we're surrounded with as we grow up is somehow the, the stratum, the kind of cultural currents that we kind of breathe and walk in and as we're growing up do become things which, for better or worse, are maybe just out of pure opportunism or pure uh, happenstance, we do kind of pull on them a bit. Mm. We, we tug on them a bit. Yeah, I have asked myself the same question. Is it something in my kind of upbringing somehow in this town which had a lot of these kind of Victorian buildings many kind of traditional houses and stuff uh, a lot of them influenced by kind of right in the background and, and some of that kind of Sullivan the way the ornament is added into openings or things like this or into doorways or around fireplaces as a kind of you know kind of elevation of these kind of moments within a building which are otherwise somehow quiet or something um, so that sort of thing is is there you know and so whether whether it's it's me coming back to it uh or whether it's me recognizing the value that i didn't ever recognize in it before you know i don't, yeah, yeah. I don't know i don't know in dublin you're working for boyd cody and you started teaching while you were working there right they were they're very generous yeah yeah <laughs> they let me start teaching uh in, in a kind of part-time studio capacity uh, quite early, you know, maybe my last year there. I worked for them for three years, and yeah, they, they let me do it, which was quite generous of them. And I guess that's, again, one of these kind of opportunities at that point in time in Ireland, which, again, were not available in the States, you know. Within three years of me working here, within four years, let's say, I had built several buildings start to finish through Boyd Cody. Um, I was licensed, I was teaching, um, and I would have started on my first projects of my own you know yeah, yeah. so 
for that to happen from getting off the boat in whatever, four or five years, you know, compared to what would have happened to me back in the States, I, I shudder to think. Dermot hired you, Jen, but also myself, Colm, mm. uh, Steve Larkin. Like, I think Taka were part of it as well. And I mean, I know that Clancy Moore wouldn't exist if we weren't teaching in DIT. Mm. We just couldn't. Mm. Have, it wouldn't have existed. Yeah. And I think that maybe that was less to do with an intrinsic openness of Irish culture than mm. Dermot, was a, he's a very good spotter of, of talent, I think, teaching talent. Well, he's also unbelievably generous. You know, even, let's say, within the first couple of years, I, he would have always had me out at socially architectural things, like a gallery opening, a show opening, or something like this, you know, that would invite me along to that. So, again, within a couple of years, I would have, you know, met John and Sheila out socially, or Shelley and Yuan, or whoever, FKL, or, you know, all those people, or Grania, you know basically within two years I knew them all, you know, to at least say hello. And, you know, again, it's just generosity, I think. Um, you know, part of it maybe is like a kind of, maybe a confidence that comes when you're not in your home place or something. You know, you don't mind rocking up to yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 and yeah, saying, yeah. oh yeah. yeah. You can act differently. You can act completely yeah. differently. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I and mean, I think their work, I mean, I, at that point in time, it was, it was really eye-opening for me, you know, partly because I wasn't, I didn't, know what my own interests were yet other than to try to build things yeah um and their work is uh really strong and of a particular viewpoint as you say it's certainly more uh like a kind of spanish modern influence certainly from yeah. both of their backgrounds i guess and um interested in form and a kind of very rational sort of sense of measure careful measure and careful proportion and you know, subtle juxtaposition, but then the moves are all quite big, you know, they're, you know, it's a square and it's a, it's a full wall is missing in glass. And so these kind of dramatic things I think are really powerful and certainly influenced me early on. You know, the first two projects I did were like versions of Boy Cody projects because that's kind of what I, yeah. what I knew at that point in time, you know, and I thought that that was the path because it was still the, not the thing I had been taught. Yeah. And that was the main thing. I was trying to get away from that somehow. At what point did you feel like you were starting to develop what you would recognize now as the interests of the practice? Like, were there moments in those projects where you were either unhappy or you were pushing back against things, or how did that evolve? In a way, the move here and the working, trying to build, uh, was yeah, sort of a reaction against the school somehow, or against what a lot of the people I was graduating with were going to do, going to work for big star firms, doing renders and stuff. M moving into my first work, you know, the first house I did with Jen, it was, it was very much a Boyd Cody house somehow. It was very clean lines. It was, it was crossed with maybe Cornell concepts or something like yeah. that, which, yeah. you know, seemed like pulled in a little bit from outside of architecture, an idea of a kind of landscape and playing with planning law in a kind of conceptual way, um, but then executed in a sort of, yeah, clean, modern, purist almost way. Um, and when it was complete, it was actually it was actually a good project. You know, we had a fairly generous budget, and things a good builder, and things went the way you want something to go. And I just kind of left me feeling quite flat somehow. You know, like here was the thing I expected to be, you know, the first big step or something, or the first thing that would get me really excited, and it left me feeling very, yeah, very flat somehow. Um, and so it really forced me into a very serious self-critical questioning about what was wrong with it right where yeah. really had I gone wrong or you know and it didn't seem like anything was wrong and so then uh, when I first started the practice I, I had a lot of these projects I the way I started the practice this is you know 
High Celtic Tiger Ireland was I sent, thanks to Dermot, I knew a lot of architects. Yeah. I knew a lot of them were busy. And so I sent a postcard to all of the architects I'd met and said, if you don't want it, I'll take it. I'm starting my own office, you know? Yeah. So then within a couple of weeks, I had, you know, all these small and fairly crappy projects, you know, but <laughs> yeah. again, I mean, that's great, right? To have all this opportunity, extensions and things, you know, and through each of the kind of small extensions and although a lot of them died in 2007 or eight or whatever, um, yeah. all of those are an opportunity to experiment and to test out, you know? So the answer to what was wrong with the first one came through building in all of the small ones, you know, try a little thing here, you know, well, I didn't quite like how the windows were made or how they were supported. So could we try something where that was visible? Or, you know, I didn't like the idea that this house had no resonance with anything else. And so could we find a way to make a form or a material resonate with the places around it, you know? And so just little bit by bit, the thing starts to accumulate somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and maybe at the time, I reading Frampton and things like this. Um, and certainly that's, that certainly had a big influence, you know, the, the idea that structure could be part of character or construction could give you the character of spaces and the conceptual intent of a project. You know, this, yeah. that was certainly a big step, I, I guess, towards where we are now, I guess. Because obviously we shared studio space literally both our practices pretty much started the same month I think hmm. I mean <laughs> I think the one thing I really remember is how angry we were about what was happening in the country because it was a lot of very surface oriented architecture a lot of very uh, cheaply thought through but cheaply built architecture and there was a conversation very early on I think to do with robustness or to do with you know if you chip it it hmm. stays the same hmm. that and I think that means conceptually, if you knock the edges <coughs> off, it should still be capable of withstanding that, but also mm. physically. And that, that robustness to do with connection with how people made things. I think that also comes from actually, you know, when you're, you're looking at all this work and a lot of our conversations were about how badly built things were, that people might have been chasing some kind of idiom using glue or something. And uh, I think we were, I, I think we also had, a, we had connections with some very interesting people which were like bricklayers or timber people. And in a way, they were educating us. And in a, in a way, we were starting to immediately put those ideas into build form, almost unmediated, you know, mm. just mm. checking ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, I guess there's two things there. One is the thing about the presence of the making or the sound construction as being central. And again, I kind of always imagine that as part of this pushback against what was internationally in in the air or in the publications or whatever, as well as maybe still my education or something. You know, yeah. that either the two things I always felt like I was reacting against were either A, the thing that would had its impetus solely in some sort of extrinsic concept or something outside of architecture being somehow applied that we were supposed to find meaning in something else, right? Philosophy or something, right? Yeah. But I find that deeply problematic and was always pushing against that to try to find what, where else, you know, interest or gravity or meaning came from. Um, and then the other thing was, in a way, the kind of shallowness of the architecture that was in the publications. And it, those two things, I think, led to, I feel like, a collective interest in what was not either of those things. And whether all of that was 
discussed explicitly by all of us or not, I don't remember, right? Whether we just found ourselves agreeing because there was something in the air. And so, of course, we agree that, you know, this is horrible and this has promise or something, right? Or uh, whether we found it together. I, it's, hard, it's hard for me to remember that, I guess. Um, when the recession really started and those group of young shooters in UCD put together that kind of now what, uh, yeah. summer school, right? Which was basically, I don't know, it was a very nice thing. I think there's something to be written about that mm. event. And basically all these people who had no work but had practices came into that school and did this free summer school for the whole summer. And you proposed that we do this timbrel vault experiment and we <laughs> turned it into this pavilion. <laughs> And we spent the entire summer with a group of unbelievable students cutting bricks down to slips because we were only gifted certain many. So we had to cut each brick into five slips and they broke more often than not. And we were sticking them together with plaster of Paris to make this garden pavilion mm. that within months of it being finished, uh, disc an uncareful UCD tutor kicked it to pits, it, yeah, right, yeah. is the story I heard. Mm. But what was attracted to us about that, I think, was this vault form. I mean, I remember that was, uh, I mean, I never thought of mm. curves. I never thought of vault or any of those things. Mm. But here it was, a structural logic that you could make thin things with. And I think that's what excited us. You were doing a building at the time. Mm. You won a competition using that technology. And I do get, I mean, I am interested in, I'm not saying that there was some kind of conversation where we were sitting in a pub ironing out the nuts and bolts of what we believed architecture was, because it isn't like that, obviously. But that... We were activated, our spatial understanding of what we wanted to do was activated by knowing how it would be made. That is 100% true. And the other thing I would say about that is, I, f I don't know if this is true in other countries in Europe, and I don't know how much it's true in the States, but the idea, I, I, I have an inkling that it's not the same, which is that you go on site and you have conversations with the guys or girls making the stuff on the site, and if you're open about your ignorance, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, then you can number one learn a ton, and number two, that decisions are made in a somewhat casual and conversational and collective way on site here. Partly because there aren't this whole kind of, you know, certainly at the small scale, there isn't this kind of formal back and forth of responding to RFIs and whatever, right? None of that stuff exists, right? There's conversation. No, there's the contract, and then there's the conversation. Exactly, yeah, and yeah. they're completely different things, and everyone here on site is prefers to get on with the conversation and to yeah. get on with the building rather than getting on with the contract. And the, the on-site education that I feel like we all had gave us the vocabulary to start to make things out of that conversation. Yeah. Um, and so, again, I think there's an, an, there's an experience thing there maybe um, that fed into, like if we didn't have the vocabulary or the language to start to say, oh, we could make a thin vault and it would be constructed in this way and I can talk to this guy who will help us out, to, you know, how we could do it and I can talk to that guy about, you know, and if we didn't have that way of working or thinking, then I don't think the whole language would follow, right, or even the agenda necessarily would have followed in the direction it did. I think a lot of that came from chats on site and I remember very clearly in the very first talk I gave about, you know, just the first couple extensions, I was invited to give a little chat to y at a YASA event. And I just talked about how I drew this window because I was interested in learning exactly how casement windows make and I wanted to make a very kind of thin, deep one or something, right? And yeah. there was a conversation with the joiner and, and two students came up to me afterwards and they, people who worked in the Netherlands and they couldn't believe 
that I could have a chat with someone in a shop and get a window made and delivered on the site and it would be exactly how I drew it. You know, this was because they got windows from a catalog, you know, yeah. or from a system or from a company. And so uh, I think it's quite unique, actually, if you can find that and that we were all able to find that conversation all the time. You know, that, that I think, had a huge effect on all of us. And so that, and I think, you know, the now what thing came directly out of that, you know. And, I mean, yeah, the fact that I'd done a bit of the legwork on the Timberwolf Falls because of Henrietta Street, uh, at least that gave us the, you know, the vocabulary. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we were sort of insane. That too. That but the students it. were equally so. Right. Yeah. But I think, I do remember that as a very kind of powerful thing because your architecture is, has started to explore in a pretty consistent way and an evolving way. I suppose the expressive limits of structure might be a useful way to describe it, be it a ring beam or a buttress or a column. You know, it is a structural interrogation, I think. Hmm. Is that fair? Yeah, definitely. And I think, again, maybe that's one of the first things moving away from the kind of more modernist stuff that I started to look at was the role structure could play in the kind of ideas of a building and the experience of a building. Yeah. And so quite early on when I was making that transition and it was like, well, let's just put a lot of structure in, you know, here we go. Let's just throw it all in there yeah. <laughs> and leave it all exposed and see what, and maybe that's enough or something, you know, and quickly found out that wasn't enough, but, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, the idea that, that also that structure was something you experienced, that like the kind of fact of it or something I thought was quite powerful. You know, I, I was kind of pushing back against the kind of idea that architecture should just be about uh, the architect. Yeah. I really was against that sort of stuff, you know, that it was, you know, that we should be finding some inner voice or something artistic, you know. Uh, and so the idea of using structure as something that we could somehow all agree and experience as a fact and a real thing and something kind of undeniable, I, I really like that. <laughs> um, yeah. And I guess only more recently I've started to play with that in a looser, or freer, more maybe architectural way. Um, but certainly that, that was one of the big shifts in my outlook, I guess, was what can structure do for us? Yeah. And that that becomes something that you can't argue with in a way. Hmm. And then that gets you so far, I guess. Yeah. And yeah. then it starts being, what can we add into it? How can we complicate it? Yeah. So how could structure resonate with a way of making in an area? Or how could structure get other jobs accrued to it? Like you mentioned the ring beam. The ring beam gets water to deal with as well. Or um, I'm working on a buttress house right now. Again, or like, you know, drainage is integrated into it and so it's it's trying to kind of complicate structure somehow um both make it more spatial but also kind of yeah make it still have the fact in it but that fact has question marks attached to it or something. yeah 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 well you're pushing other things against it you know so hmm. the rainwater one obviously is another key one where you know say it's about how do i get water to drip off of the eaves and that that's an event in a house, right? Which is something that you're looking at. Mm. Um, and what does that do to the structural form and how does weathering and patination and discoloration mm. become part of how we think about work? And they're all sort of ways of allowing us to explore form without strictly exploring form. Or for you, yeah. I mean, I think that yeah, for me, it's, really it's, it's permission for you to explore form, right? 
right, yeah. Because I do feel like I need permission. Actually. Yeah, yeah, because really you're do. quite anti-formalist, <laughs> right? You, you would be quite against it. Mm. That form as its own end is not not its pursuit. Mm. We used, you and I used to get in conversations about the structure thing, you know, right. I was very, very interested in it at that time, and you weren't so interested in it at that time. So let's just take something like, say, Frampton, right? Tectonic culture. I mean, I part company with the thesis of that book. Mm. I, I, I think we've had discussions about, you know, I don't think that structural integrity alone is purely what you're doing or what we're doing. And I think that Frampton's book is an interesting essay, but ultimately at some point we make a move that is completely uh, disconnected from the logical ways that things go together. No, I mean, I think, and at that point I was still discovering the structure and the fact of it and not quite comfortable with undermining the fact of it yet for architectural gain or something, or spatial effect, or whatever, right? You know, that I wasn't quite comfortable with it. Now I'm quite comfortable with it. I get fake columns all over the place these days. This is the sort of complicated thing about an architectural position, which is that you're constantly building the ground under your feet, but that stratum remains somehow, mm -hmm. you know? So it's not as if, as you take a step to the next position, that that's entirely new ground. Oh, yeah. All sure. of that thinking is still there, where if you started out and you were taught by somebody saying all structures, all columns are non-structural. Yeah. They're purely architectural devices. Mm. Well, where you end up is obviously very different. Mm. There's a bit of self-delusion required. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I think all of that comes back to kind of always perpetually being self-critical or something, you know? That you, you, like, if I had accepted the structural thing, that structure is what it is, and it can blend character, but it, you know, it, can't lie about it or fake it for architectural intent or something like that, then yeah, the work would be less rich than it is now, or than I hope it is now. Yes. Um, and that's really me always being unhappy about it, you know, or always being really critical about it. And that, that's certainly, if you're talking about an evolving position, is central to it, right? That you don't settle down so much. There's another thing that we disagree about, I feel like, which is something that I thought maybe we didn't pick up on, which is about the importance of a local inflection or not, or the place of tradition in the work. You know, whereas I, I'm, I feel like I'm much more interested in the kind of continuity connection as a way to kind of connect to the ordinary or in the world, the material world, or the non-architectural people of the world um, that doesn't seem to concern you as much. I'm just, I wonder about it. We, 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 I think it's, for me, it's to do with the limit of the aberration within the given condition, and yet it still is part of its context, if that, understand, if that makes sense. So, like, yeah. uh, I'm, interested, I'm interested in more direct. You're very interested in typology and in time, in the making of a place, and how that can continue to inform a very radically different contemporary tectonic. And I think our practice is interested in what all of those things added up might feel like and how do you do with how do you deal with that feeling? Like it's the casual buttress thing I'm trying to talk about, which is this essay I wrote, where I'm not really so interested in the shape of the gable, but I am interested in mm. the feeling that arises from mm. how things were placed together at that time. Mm. And I do think that's that is how we talk in the office. We talk a lot about how something will feel and how it feels intellectually, even as we're working on it. Yeah, but I mean, I, th I think you're you're you're, you're first was spot on about the limit, right? I mean, there's a question if you have this field of resonances that I speak about or we speak about in our office um, and about where those 
point to. You know, it points to here, it points to here, this points to there, that points to there. And we try to layer in or build in all of these in a quite, maybe cumulatively, it ends up being not so direct, but each resonance somehow is direct. What we're really excited about at the moment is, you know, the prop or the column, not as something non-structural, but as the ultimate structural thing. Mm. So, uh, and, and, and the permission to kind of do odd things where you just look at a building and go, well, they, they want this type of living space downstairs, they want this type of living space upstairs. That involves a very odd mm. uh, family of columns and how do we build a resonant architectural language from that contingency, right? And I don't think we would have had that permission to think that way when we started the practice, for sure we wouldn't have. Do you know what I mean? I do know what I mean. I still, the question to me, though, is where the language of it all comes from. To me, the language of it always comes from a kind of interpretation of things which are there already. And I want that to be evident. If I move too far away in the language from its origin point, then to me, it's lost its kind of value somehow. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, so sure. while there's always a translation from like a, a type or a construction method or a form or whatever, which exists in the landscape around a thing, um, and inevitably it moves away from that or it towards the language that the project wants to be. But if there are, it starts, I feel the project moving away from it or more distant to it or to the limit of that referent, I'll pull it back because I, that is, that's really important to me that that is there. Even if it meant that like, I was abandoning something that was potentially more architecturally interesting, <laughs> I would still pull it back so that it's legible. No, we do that too, but we're really interested in that limit state. So I'm just I'm thinking right now of a project that we're got on site at the moment where the Victorian house and had a bay window to the rear. There was nothing special about the bay window, it was in PVC, and we had to remove it to make this extension because of the instructions that the clients have given us. But we liked the way the bay window hmm. sat in the garden. And so the first thing we did was we drew a bay window at the back and it looked weird. And so we put another bay window beside it. And then the wall in between starts to disappear. And then it became all bay window. And then we thought of Van Eyck. And suddenly we were in this other place where we yeah. hadn't been before. Yeah. And yet we could still bring it back to a conversation about a bay window. Now, I don't think anybody looking at that project would think it was about a bay window because mm. it now looks like it's about other things. Mm. But for us, it still is. And I think that um, we enjoy that point where you get it right to the limit of something. It's not recognisable anymore, and yet it still has the it still has the qualities that moved you to respond to it in the first place. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I I think I do find those moments, but at the same time, I I think there's a power in the familiar for people to see something and think they understand it only to discover that they absolutely do not understand it or that it's something else entirely right yeah. that that initial comfortableness in, in a way it's a kind of foundation of uncanny or something right the yeah. kind of unhomely homely or something right yeah and so i'm kind of really interested in that both from a kind of way to convey meaning but also as an experience experiential sort of thing right so take that house in my colon you see it across the fields and you don't think it's anything other than It looks utterly ordinary, you know? It looks like just some barn over there, you know? And then you get a little bit closer, and 
You're like, oh, no, it's a house, it's a house, but it's got these very strange chimneys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. But, but, you know, it's basically, I know exactly what it is, right? It's, it's plaster and it's the same concrete they got over there. And, you know, and then, and then you're at the front of it and you're like, hold on a second here, people. <laughs> right? And so I think the keeping the familiar present in the thing is a really important kind of setup for me in the work anyways that allows that kind of, when it shifts away from the familiar, to be really powerful potentially or to have really, or maybe even to like allow someone to be open to a different kind of experience of the thing rather than it just being like different from the outset. Yeah. Where the difference is, a, is not a value to me, maybe, except in the context of the familiar. I think we're both coming at the, the same desire, but we're coming at it through different means. It's interesting, though, because like, the conversation about history and the conversation about the expressive potentials of architecture, and although I have affinity with a lot of European practices at the moment, as do you, I think we're very different in that way because we don't see it the way they do. Like, I certainly don't see the, the building as this game where you can pin different historical artefacts together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not that I'm not interested in that, but it's not native to how my hand wants to move on a piece of paper. Can I return back to this, the, the, the thing about the, the structure and the water thing? And I, I think, to me, it's uh, part of it for me was also about finding other things which were somehow universally true or something, right? Or universally relevant. Again, trying to push against the idea that this is an art project. Yeah. Um, and that there's things which can resonate with people anywhere and be somehow understandable to everyone, not just architects and artists and stuff like that, right? And so dealing somehow with universal things like structure and like water and like gravity and whatever, but then doing that in a kind of very local way. I'm interested in that straddling between those two things. So just to return to your thing about the, well, first of all, and I just, you know, and a lot of that also came from maybe me trying to say, okay, well, structure is one thing, which is kind of a universal fact somehow. What else is there, you know, that kind of operates in that way? And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of interested in time too, you know, how buildings will be viewed in 30 years. And so, part of the way to, I, I hope, would ensure that is by dealing with things which are more, yeah, universal and stable, let's say. You know, Prey has that thing, August Prey has that thing about uh, the permanent conditions of architecture. And weather, I think, is kind of interesting as well, right? That, you know, he, he thinks that's a permanent thing, and in a way it's true, right? And Ireland was probably pretty rainy a thousand years ago, and it will probably be pretty rainy. Yeah. Well, who knows now, right, with the global warming? But. I think uh, rain's a big think, part of it. I think yeah. rather rain's definitely going to yeah. still happen. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so um, yeah, so that idea of other things which might be universal. So just referring back to that uh, conversation about us and relationship to other European architects, I think some of the vein of what's coming out now is related to that kind of postmodern historicist vein, uh, a kind of Rossi-esque sort of postmodernism, which has these baggage of these forms, right? Of the kind of pure circle, the triangle, the pediment, the certain type of column or yeah. whatever, yeah. which was in, discussed back then as having a kind of universal meaning, which could be you know, applied to a building and be understood somehow, right? That it would communicate somehow. Um, and so I think there is, in the recovery of those forms, still an interest maybe that they are universal things or are somehow understood oh, yeah, outside yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, 
outside of the specific voice of an architect, let's say, and so therefore there's value in those things. I do find a problem in that they're not being spoken about in that way, and that it's like the current version of the applique of those forms seems to be devoid of the, I don't know, the deep thought about what is meaningful in architecture or what meaning architecture can carry or how it could communicate, you know, which was, yeah. was there back in the, whatever you might say about the postmodern historicist movement, if you could call it that, um, you know, at least that was a very strong part of the conversation. And now these things are applied in a way which feels it's the same as like an emoji or, an, you know, it's an icon. It's a, yeah. something off a desktop and stuck on. And so yeah, it but has an emptiness behind it that I find problematic. I think the conversation that we're all talking about is what weight of meaning do we believe that architecture can carry in today's pluralistic discourse, if any. I guess the reason those architects may not talk about that is because that's a surefire way to get absolutely studs high challenge from a critic. You know, it's so funny how many people say that they are interested in, they're not interested in being so serious and they want to be playful. And there's so many more players than there are serious people that I'm going, what serious people are you talking about? You know, there's so few of them. This, this, this myth, mythological day that you are responding against is purely a way of you to avoid maybe going there yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is where I'm kind of going now because you're, at the start you said that architecture isn't an art, we're not artists. But the buildings you make and the sites where you work are different than the one we make. So the architect's part of it, right? Hmm. And where are you now on that? Like, Where are you now on the role of the architect? I'm very concerned about my clients, I guess, and the people around them. And so I like to make buildings that I think at least have a chance to be relevant and kind of meaningful to those people, you know, the clients and the people around the buildings. And so that's my... Rather than them just being relevant or interesting to me as an architect or to the field of architects who might look at it. And so what that means maybe is that a lot of the moves in the buildings that I do are not understood or interesting to people outside of Ireland. Um, And that's kind of a gamble I guess I take. Uh, But I don't mind that, right? Because I'm more interested in it being about, you know, the clients and the place and the type of building culture that exists there. Because I think that's a kind of key way for architecture to connect to people who aren't artists and architects, right? Is for it to be about the kind of material world, which they sort of grow up and understand implicitly. Somehow. But it's, it's your reading of that, right? Oh yeah, certainly. And I'm a foreigner reading that. And no, 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 you're not, you're not a foreigner. Well, you're, you're as Irish as I am. But the, the thing is that the, 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 because, <laughs> you know, around the corner from that beautiful house in my, my Cullen, there is a huge yellow Neo-Palladian thing with lines on the gates, right? Yeah. Which is also part of the local yeah, yeah. contemporary vernacular. Yeah. And so I'm interested in where you... Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, again, there's a judgment initially about yeah, relevance in a reading of the building culture. Yeah. Not all things are necessarily equal within that. Yeah. There are things we can agree are trash and there are things we can agree have some value. And... Um, and I certainly think things which endure can be measured to have value or things which people appreciate maybe over a long period of time. So perhaps the lions on the pedestals might be a flash in the pan. <laughs> Whereas um, maybe a simple gable and the kind of one room deep plans that 
exist everywhere in this country that everyone sort of just implicitly understands probably carry a, an understanding or a meaning or something which we can resonate with, we can we can bounce off of, we can mm. draw ideas from maybe. And, and again, I think that's an opportunity for the work to have yeah, a resonance to non-architects. Um, but, and then, but there's this thing where uh, I think you're also interested in the act of its making has somehow, that somehow becomes part of the language of the building. Mm. That whether it's readable literally or not is, is sort of a moot point. But that there is clearly a wall and there's clearly a way of terminating that wall and there's yeah. clearly time involved in that. And that, that seems to be something that you're consciously attracted to is that the work that you, you're not interested in in the local vernacular doesn't seem to have those qualities. Because there isn't really any rule. Like it could be a barn, it could be a Palladian house, actually. It could mm-hmm. be anything. And we would sit down and have a good conversation about it. But there does seem to be... I don't think it's about a literal communication in terms of semiotics. But it's an empathetic relationship with human decisions made in the making of an artefact. I think that's sort of uh, the shape of the conversation, in a way. Uh, but that's, that's what I, I guess that's what, I was, that's what I was speaking about in the lecture a bit, was just this idea of, of resonance... And I was talking about it in terms of type. I'm interested in that, what I would say, like a reverberation or a resonance with things in the world and in particular things around the place of the building. Yeah. And so some of those are formal things, yes, and, you know, they're gables or they're, you know, plan, type, plan types or they're typological in a kind of traditional sense, um, like the courtyard house. Some of those are in, well, how do they make walls here? What does the guy around the corner know about making walls? And it's you know, he's made these ones around here. And so there's a material thing and a constructional thing, which is evident. I try to make all those things evident and out there, right? To Mm. be picked up on if one is, you know, open to it or aware of it. And, you know, you do find maybe that people pick up on a a bit here or a bit there. They recognize that, oh, that concrete looks very much like the concrete, which is around the corner in my uncle's house or whatever, you know? Um, And that kind of, I think that all these resonances at, across scales and across modes, let's say, I, th- I think that kind of very much locks a building into its place and takes me away, does that thing of taking me away a little bit as, of an author, let's say, of imposing form on a thing or trying to make a statement as an architect or trying to make a name for myself or any of this sort of stuff, which I really, yeah, I can't get on board with. Yeah, no, you hate it. it. Yeah, I hate yeah, it within the profession. It, yeah. yeah, so, I mean, yeah, so a lot of the but, stuff but, we're doing ends up being very... But this is, I think this is exactly it, because um, they say the structural, the expressive potentials of structure, right? I don't actually really care if uh, anybody reads the intention, but what matters to me is that the intention produces something resistant, which, like you say, gives you something to work against, where the ego and the authorial tendencies mm. don't surface as much, mm. right? And then... Because they all, what's, some, what's amazing about the all embrace of nature of spatial experience, you know, where everything is read as part of this conscious, subconscious existence we all understand but can't verbalize, is that any artifact will be so much more complex than what we think it is. Well, but I also think perhaps that us having, again, this is maybe the world here influencing our perspectives on what architecture ought to be, you know, rather than the other way around or something. Uh, that, you know, us working through the recession here, 
meant that we had to be extremely efficient, you know, or that things had to be quite direct in their buildability or affordability, or that we know the person who can do it and we can get them there. And we were able to find ideas and ways of making and designing which were quite robust and very well grounded, let's say, as opposed to indulgent or self-indulgent or uh, maybe overly academic or something, right? That yeah. things have a directness here because we have to get things done for, I mean, I've never built anything for over, what, maybe 400,000 in all of my years. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, we, we, we have like one now which barely, barely gets well, above that. So I think that directness and that yeah. conversation on site prevents us from doing anything. <laughs> Actually, it's interesting that you talk about the recession. Certainly there were years where Wheeler earned less than the Dole, because in Ireland, if you're self-employed, you cannot mm. go on the Dole. None of us are from wealthy families. There was a, somebody from a very well-known, socially engaged practice in the UK over assessing the AI awards recently, and he was giving out about one of our projects because he was going, well, I just don't believe that you know, architecture is about doing work for middle-class people. And to that person, I'd say, buddy, survive a depression. <laughs> it's middle-class people you've got to work for, because without a trust fund, you're not going to be able to get there. Mm. But where I'm sort of going is now that we're not in a recession and things are beginning to move again, it is now up to us, I feel, to start trying to get different types of work or hopefully do that. And do you see a future for that in Ireland for your practice? Because there is problems here about how that works. You know, how is that working for you? Is Is there anything... I don't have any idea. I always say this when people ask me why I'm still here or something like that. You know, because what are you going to go home? People still ask me 15 years on, am I going to go home? You know, yeah. I'm definitely not going home. But I guess because I, my answer is always that Ireland is a great place to get a start in architecture and in teaching architecture. And I think it still continues to be. Um, the opportunities for young practice to get the first chance, which is really what you need. Uh, I think are pretty unique here, you know? So um, the, the problems of it are really just the thing you're suggesting, right? The transition to getting public work. And by that, even I'm assuming you mean work, not like private houses, but work that is public buildings for people to Yeah, or, or even privately funded social housing or whatever. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, you know, for, I, I, I did do one, one of those. Um, <laughs> Uh, we did this project Vita House, which, right, which yeah. is which is frustrating. Maybe that the one public job I did has house attached to it, but it's in the title <laughs> of the organization, which is really this kind of counseling center in Roscommon. Um, and yeah, it was great. It was a joy, and but it was it was it was off the back of the recommendation of a private client. And so, I guess my answer is that I'm hopeful that. Um, in a way, I feel like I sort of have to set aside government work here because it is so problematic getting it. And once you get it, I'm not sure it's worth it because of the structures in place here. Yeah. Um, uh, and so certainly I would hope that maybe there's more privately funded public work that can come from even some of the domestic work we're doing, right? It's all about knowing people and them knowing people and that sort of thing. And that's how that project happened in any project which has been public that we've been involved in has come in that way. So I think it's more about building practice generally that it really is a long game, you know? It's not like a quick hit, win two competitions and then you're set for... Yeah, you know, it's very much a slow and steady accrual of things. Well, the, the curious thing is that we still have, you know, architects in highly paid positions in, for want of a better term, 
the civil service, right? Uh, we have city architects, county architects, town architects, even in some places, um, a state architect. A state architect. <laughs> so, so for me, actually, a lot of the infrastructure is in place. It's about whether whether they can find a way to because I think a lot of them actually do talk about trying to open the door. I mean, at, at our age, right? O'Donnell and Toomey and Grafton had built three or four major public buildings mm. each. Mm. And they had won them all through one competition, the Temple Bar competition. And it's curious to me that that, that, that competition structure that did work so well hasn't been really replicated because you've won public buildings in design competitions in Ireland that didn't go ahead. Mm. Taka have also won public buildings in design competitions that didn't go ahead. We have mercifully come second in a lot of uh, competitions for these self-same buildings, which Colin points out maybe is the most the best position, position yeah, in the, the best position, yeah. And and like I'm kind of debating, this is a strong conversation in the UK against design competition that's being a waste of time, and there are a few design competitions coming up in Ireland. I don't know where I sit in. I think that design competitions aren't a waste of time if they're just the norm. If you're not getting hundreds and hundreds of entries, if you're getting 20 or yeah. 30 entries, yeah. I think it's not a waste of time. And it's in fact a lot more pleasurable to spend a week doing that than filling out a framework submission for uh, a state body. Yeah, and I guess in a way the question here is about building a culture because you hear about countries where there are, you know, so many, you know, like Switzerland or whatever, where there are so many competitions and um, that, as you say, you get fewer entries. If there's a competition in Ireland or in England, they get hundreds. Yeah. And that's because there's two a year and people are hungry for that opportunity. I mean, I can understand the argument against them as being a waste of time and certainly that you could, you know, from another another profession, you know, look at it as laughable that all these hundreds of people would spend hundreds of hours on these things that would, you know, be tossed in the bin most likely. Uh, does seem a great waste of human capital <laughs> on the one hand. Um, but on the other hand, you can look at it that it's really part of, um, you know, the work that many businesses do to get their name out or to build business, you know. they follow a lot of dead ends and they're just in different forms. So I, I think it's certainly supportable, but I think the most important thing is that there's a culture of it and that it is regular and supported by all the institutions of the state and the licensing body. So I, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. And part of that also, I think is that architects who are graduating from school, you know, I think a, a lot of people who go through architecture school do not in the end become architects or practicing architects. And I think that's great. And I think that's right and fine. I think it's a great education, whether you become an architect or not. Um, but what I would like to see happening, really, is that a lot of those people would go into public bodies or into advocacy groups or you know, doing all of the other things around the world of architecture and of building and supporting it and supporting practice and good work and all these sorts of things. You know, If the people... If all architects are sitting there arguing in their own corner, or anybody who has any knowledge of it is, you know, looks at it as sort of an entertainment. <laughs> um, but it's sort of it's then sort of, there's a problem. You know, you build a culture by people in it being interested and involved in many levels. Looking at somewhere else like Portugal or something, that there is an understanding of the value of architects in the culture more broadly, and so. Uh, you know, part of, you know, they have two Prisker Prize winners who every, you know, every Joe in the <laughs> Joe and Mary in the country know their name and know something about their work. And um, you know, Switzerland has that as well. I suppose that they they have this kind of culture of architecture. And so I, I'm, you know, when I first moved here, I was interested that um, 
there would be writing about architecture in the newspaper and sometimes it would be in the culture section and sometimes it would be in the property section and you could look on that as saying oh you know it's belittling architecture or something to put it in the property section and i sort of thought it was different i thought that it was great that people who would be looking for a house or just you know reading about interior design might also encounter architecture which one might refer to as high architecture right yeah and, yeah, yeah. and that they it might seem like something available to them or that they could hire someone or that they could look at it or you know be interested or something right that that somehow to me that bringing it into the ordinary world the day-to-day world somehow is a great way to build a culture of architecture and i think all of these things spring out of that you know you're not going to suddenly you know even the discussion of fees or competitions you know all each of those is only one small part in a broader thing which is about what whether that's valued by the society or not you know so this is another reason i suppose in my own work why i'm I really like to avoid the kind of authorship thing or something that I'd like it to be ordinary somehow to be made of the ordinary things of the place um, and not to be this kind of self-reflective inward-looking discourse amongst ourselves and out-clevering each other, you know? I mean, which again, I think is a real state's problem, I guess, which I'm reacting against, you know? They've isolated themselves from society (laughs) in ways which make them seem irrelevant to any you know, any plumber or banker or anything, right? Unless you're interested in architecture, which very few people are, uh, (laughs) then it seems irrelevant to them. So I think the more that we can make architecture of the everyday stuff and have it be out there in everyday media and everyday Mm. discourse, then that builds culture of it. And that's what we need. Yeah. And I, I, I think that it's an interesting... It's an interesting challenge, though, because that's something that has to... Because architecture is enmeshed in the societies where it, it is placed, I suppose, and we can't push those. We can push them, but we can't fully shape those cultures. And part of that does seem to be about if, if this thing does have a value, we do either ourselves as a discipline or champions from within, critical voices or whatever, need to be better at communicating what that value might be, you know, to the broader community, I think. I guess that is very clear when you're dealing with tight budgets and clients in a domestic situation who really need you to make a kind of tangible reasoning why something should be done. If they're going to spend €20,000 on something, then Mm. that stuff's going to get interrogated. And the funny thing that happens, though, is that, because we're doing this wastewater treatment plant, is when you get to other types of work, that pushback... Mm. doesn't happen in the same way it happens on value for money obviously and these other things but it doesn't happen on that why that why that you're talking about and I think that's interesting why the domestic work will always have to be an important engine to practice because I think it's only there and through teaching particularly teaching in first year and second year that you get those those types of really hard questions Mm. Mm. like but why is that why is that good yeah (laughs) exactly yeah why do you think that (laughs) Why do I need an octagonal bathroom? I, well, <laughs> let me explain it to you. <laughs> I think I, I like to, just that idea of a champion. I think is an interesting thing as well. You know, I think certainly within the country, you know, there's this whole problem of media these days, right? And that's a it's a problem. Uh, but uh, I think within the country, architecture here it needs a champion um, that speaks between us or and the general populace, which doesn't seem to exist anymore um, here. 
Um, and I think probably that's needed in Europe as well um, in two ways. I mean, number one, I think, you know, there's one that, which is about, you know, maybe more public, uh, you know, not that there's not great people working in public uh, media right now. There is, but I, I'm interested in the fact that we can all identify a common movement, if you will, which has various strands, but somehow feels related of small practice of practice that are interested in ideas about locality and uh, a kind of regionalism perhaps and interested in craft and interested in all these things that we can point to these people across Europe and that, and that somehow there is no champion of that movement in a kind of written sort of way or a critic sort of way that seems to bring these people together and say, yeah, look, here, here, here is there's something really important happening here. And I do think there's something important happening here. Uh, I think there's something important happening, but I think as soon as anybody drew a circle around us all, we go, no, I'm not with that guy. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> no, that always has happened, you know, like, the, you know, Benham's brutalists all said they weren't, you know, and everybody was, you know, all the New York Five guys didn't really like being associated with each other. And Oh, did they not? No, they all thought they were doing different things, you know, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I think that's fine. I think, you know, people need this slightly, I'm not, I'm not calling for like some sort of simplistic analysis, but certainly something to, you know, a champion, as you say. So where were we? What were we talking about? Whether there ought to be a champion or so, champions. Uh, just, just for our listeners, we've been joined by a second interviewer, Luan, my two-year-old, so any noise you can hear are Luan uh, sucking his bottle. No, but I think that one of the things I love about the UK, architectural culture, and there's lots of people there that are, is that you know, you've got Rowan Moore, you've got Eddie Heathcote, you've got uh, Alice Woodman, you've got Holly Wainwright, whatever. You know, there's about 10 significant figures who... Mm earn their living still miraculously from writing about architecture or doing cultural acts around architecture. Yeah. And it does seem to me something where that does seem to be part of the transaction whereby, you know, a young developer might give a young practice a chance or a local authority would or whatever. And I think it's sort of, because I, I, I do agree with you that the discourse of architecture isn't something highfalutin and it's not like critiquing a novel or it's not like you know, a piece of pure art. But I do think that the culture section has its value too because oh, yeah, it places absolutely. those things. Because where there is no architectural voice in Ireland is in yeah, the culture section. Yeah, yeah. Where well, there's many levels of this, right? One is it's great, yes, as you say, in the UK, they have these people working in publicly consumed media. Mm. And I think that's really important. And and it's, and we don't have that here. And so that was one of the people I think we're, we're missing, right? And whether it's in the culture or in the property, I think it should be in both. But still, we need a few of those people desperately. Um, and, and that's one thing about changing the culture, as you say, which, you know, as you say, it feeds out, who knows where it goes, right? The developer, the family, the corporation, the whatever, right? Who say, ah, here's an interesting person doing relevant work. Anyway, so, but then the other thing I think is something maybe pan-European or something, you know, that says there's something going on here in Europe, which we're related somehow through maybe we're all interested in each other's work, maybe we share certain themes, you know, uh, and that uh, I don't see the people bringing all those together somehow. You know, maybe there's occasionally a small publication, again, for architects, um, like a San Rocco or something like that, which is a very particular angle on what, you know, one side of what's happening in Europe, but uh, I'm, I'm sort of interested that there's an opportunity there that some champion or champions might start to pull these things together and say, this is, 
is so significant. That's it's all. the movement that we're talking about in European architecture is very concerned about fabric. It's not really concerned about monumental buildings. It's to do with very ordinary, quite cheaply built buildings in quite peripheral mm-hmm. and kind of quasi-urban situations. There's very few of these on the public square or the high street or whatever they are fragmented suburban small pieces of architecture and they're part of architecture becoming I guess part of the commonplace mm. and so they're they're also and therefore they're also work where the thesis for want of a better word is for all the reasons that this discussion has gone through that all these architects are resistant to a conceptual thesis that is an easy way to summate their work they each in their own cultures are coming at the problems that we have described their own way mm. Therefore, it's a very difficult one because they're all quite nuanced, quite dilute, and actually the only thing that unites them is a sort of skillful exuberance of some sort that we recognise when we see it, but which is difficult to name or frame. Yeah, that's the champion's job, right? (laughs) (laughs) We just keep doing it and they (laughs) they can name or frame it. (laughs) But that's that's what's interesting, that we all do recognise it immediately when we see it, you know? like I know some people, you know, and I enjoy, uh, I enjoy this side as well. They dismiss it as, you know, the kind of hipster history guys, you know, which I understand is part of what we could say is happening. But I think mm. that's to miss actually huge amounts of it. Mm. No, I mean, I, 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 I think it's interesting that when, you know, you have these people in the lecture, you know, we've been lecturing around a bit. And, you know, when you meet people whose work you admire, who are part of, might, might be this group and we're all aware of each other and we're all aware of, you know, and there are certainly disagreements, as you say, you know, I mean, I was slightly flippingly, flippantly uh, referring to a kind of iconic formalism or something in platonic forms or something or other, you know, right, which I'm, I'm sort of digging at one part of that school, but I still admire and find it. Are you alright, Luan? <laughs> He's cool. He's just having a little post bottle cough. Post bottle cough. No, I do. Anyway, I still I admire that I admire this work, you know, I find it very interesting this work. And I, I think it, I think by finding ways to bring the groups together, um, and maybe discourse through publication or discourse that we need like a new Siam or something, right? Do we need a a conference of sorts where we can argue with each other and get along as well and I don't know I'm just interested that, that no it's true because for me actually whenever I say something not negative but critical hmm. about these practices it's not because I don't value them in their context yeah. it's that there's not a huge amount for me to bring to mind in that I understand its value so I understand say like there's a lot of practices in Holland or Belgium or Switzerland that I would really admire and we get on really well but their work is valuable in their territories, mm. although I love it yeah. where I find it. Mm. And I think that's the sort of context, which is that I also think it's sort of implicit in all the work of all those practices that you sort of do know is that if they did do a housing block in Dublin, it would be different for it. Yeah. But that also makes this quite hard for this critic that we're talking about. That's mythical critic. Yeah, which is why people like Al Jati, whose work I don't respond to on any level, they're very attractive to critics because they're so clear, you know, it's so clear, or Gearspan Severn or whatever, it's so absolutely, the thesis is so clear and so skillfully delivered yeah. that, well, the essay's already written, so... Mm. But that's what, and I think that's, again, what's interesting, we would find common ground with these other people is our interest in the, the contingent and the, you know, not 
the kind of pure concept or the iconic maybe that we're interested in the contingent and the local and the bizarre inflection and the you know this sort of thing and when it's when it's drawn out we all recognize it and we all enjoy making things of that right and but you know okay so i too talk about contingency too and i love it and i value it in our work and our ability to respond to it and not to be certain in the face of it uh, but is that a bit like the drowning man falling in love with the life raft or is that genuinely genuinely a valuable thing in architecture i ask myself this all the time right well, I mean, I think that, you know, there are points where in my office and in conversations with you guys and others where we would be, you know, or with Steve Larkin or something, you know, or like obsessing about how rain is falling into this gutter and we're like, oh, isn't that lovely? And you do have to question at that moment, <laughs> what on earth is going on here? <laughs> Take a step back and say, no, yes, that is a beautiful thing, you know? Yeah. And I, uh, uh, yeah, it's just... I think every, maybe it's every generation or every architect or I don't know what it is or something in the zeitgeist, there's a set of maybe values or something or interests or something that come along with that, you know, so the interest in the ordinary is certainly something which is present. Interest in continuity is certainly something which is present. So I think the links, the links are there and obvious, although maybe more difficult to articulate. That's a good note to end it on, I think. And before we wrap up these interviews, we always like to close with the same question, which is if you had one piece of advice to give somebody either studying or intending to study architecture now, what would it be? I completely forgot that you asked this question and didn't think about it at all. It's a doozy. <laughs> I should have prepared had we known it was coming, right? Yeah. Um, Please edit out the pause now. <laughs> no, we're not editing this bit. I'm leaving this uncomfortable silence in. Um, I, 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 I think it's important that, uh, that young architects build for other people. You know, they're, that's what they try to achieve is for others, not for them or something. You know, that... Our value to society is in in making good and useful and beautiful things for people, you know, and that's a powerful place to be in. And so I think I think people should value that. Architects should value that. You know, that's partly me saying that going back to this thing about, you know, not, you know, recognizing perhaps your value as an artist or something or having creative intent, but that really that uh, like nothing makes me happier in the whole thing of doing architecture, then when a client calls me in like five years later and says, oh, it's so amazing. We're so happy here. Yeah. This is, this is, this is to me where the primary objective, you know, all the rest of it seems to me to be interesting and enjoyable, but not really it. And so uh, I, I think the architecture profession gets more valued by people in the world if, if more architects have that as their primary objective. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Register. Please do leave your comments uh, and your suggestions um, and subscribe using your podcast provider on choice. I think we're up on all major platforms from iTunes to Stitcher to Acast, etc. So if there's particular providers you'd like us to add, just do let us know. Um, before signing off, I'd just like to thank a few people. First, uh, Poddington Bear for the music in the intro. And the rest of the Register team, who are Christoph Luder, 
Matt Phillips, Matt Wells, and my co-producer of this series of podcasts and uh, lectures, Laura Evans. I do hope you'll join us in our next episode. Thank you.